0: How do Christians engage with the wider cultural world in which we find ourselves? This is a prescient question in our current day and age but it's not a new one. Faithful followers of Christ have been asking this question and debating this question throughout the history of the church. In fact we have a record of one of the earliest churches asking this very question not one generation removed from Christ's earthly ministry. For us living today, understanding how we can be faithful in the midst of rapidly changing culture can be a difficult and yet vital task. On the one hand, we want to know how to be disciples, living in the world ourselves. On the other hand, most of us here have an evangelical desire to bring others to faith. Doing so requires at least some engagement with the prevailing culture. So this morning, we are going to look at how Christians ought to engage culture, and we're going to invite our old pal, Andy Crouch, back with us as a conversation partner. Not literally, he's got a day job, um, but metaphorically speaking. You'll remember Andy from our sermon on how Christians use technology from his wonderful book, The TechWise Family. Today we'll be using his older but still good book, Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling as a jumping off point. And normally this is when I hold it up, uh, but I did that newfangled thing where I bought the book on my Kindle. Um, So imagine that I'm holding up a book or a Kindle, uh, but I have nothing to show you. I apologize. So one of the first things Crouch does in his book is point out that all of us, in one way or another, engage, consume, and interact with culture. He writes, quote, "...culture is all of these things, paintings, whether finger paintings or the Sistine Chapel, omelets, chairs, snow angels. It is what human beings make of the world. It always bears the stamp of our creativity, our God-given desire to make something more than we were given." Quote. Culture is merely our way of making sense of the world, making meaning in the world. Culture is what we make of the world. So no matter what, we all engage culture because we all do something in the wider world. Crouch also outlines that there is no single entity called culture. Oftentimes we might bemoan the culture as if, this, if there is a monolithic entity imposing its will upon us. But that thing, the culture, doesn't exist. There are many different cultures, many different cultural artifacts, and, in fact, different spheres of culture that combine in layers to make up our life. Who here remembers their first trip to Starbucks? I don't know what it was like for you, but I felt like I was an alien walking into an entirely different planet the first time I walked into Starbucks. I didn't know what a macchiato was, I didn't know what the difference was between macchiato and latte. I didn't see a list of flavor shots anywhere. Not speaking Italian, I had no idea what venti meant. and, And I got the sense that questions were frowned upon. If you got up to the cashier and didn't know exactly what you wanted, you were going to anger and annoy these seven people behind you. Now, don't get me wrong. I I am now a full Starbucks cultural aficionado. I get my venti pumpkin spice lattes. That's not the only pumpkin spice latte reference in this sermon. (laughs) But Starbucks has its own culture, its own language. And it is a culture and language different from other places in our life. Name one other store where you ask for a venti anything. Or how about this one? Patrick and I will watch TV or movies on uh, Saturday mornings often. And when we watch a movie at home, he'll like to ask me questions about what's going on in the movie, what's happened. Uh, most of these movies contain songs, and so he'll ask me to replay the songs for him so he can sing and dance to the songs. And I'll do it. We'll talk during the movie, it doesn't matter. We'll replay songs, it doesn't matter. Now, a couple of times over the summer, I took Patrick to a movie theater to see a movie. And he wanted to ask questions, and he wanted me to explain what was going on in the movie, and sometimes he asked for certain songs to be repeated. The act was the same, watching a movie. But unbeknownst to Patrick, we had entered into a different sphere of culture, and the movie theater has its own norms and behaviors different from our family room on a Saturday morning. So asking how Christians consume culture is to enter into a complex and differentiated space. There is no one right answer, because there is no one culture. What we are really looking at is how Christians should inhabit different spheres of culture. Which ones should we inhabit? And should we inhabit different spaces differently? And with the question framed as such, we now turn to an early church controversy. In 1 Corinthians 8, church planter extraordinaire Paul is asking a question sent to him from a church that he founded. It concerned how the new Christian community ought to look at food that had been offered to idols. This was a cultural question. And it's a question that would have been extremely important to the particular community of Christians in Corinth. Corinth was a city begun by freed slaves about 100 years before Paul started a church there. It was a city that had incredible economic opportunity, and people with no social standing suddenly found themselves uh, with an incredible amount of power, clout, and wealth. It was the very definition of culture-making, As a young city full of nouveau riche, it was also a religious melting pot. The market and the temple were intertwined such that it was nearly impossible to separate yourself from the various cults of Rome. Paul goes to Corinth and begins a church there. The members of Paul's church in Corinth would have been converts from Greek and Roman pagan idol worship, rather than Jews who followed the teachings of Jesus, which was the primary makeup of the church in Jerusalem. They had been, the, the Christians in Corinth had been called from a former way of life into a new way of living following Jesus. But an open question for many in the church was how much to engage with the things of their former life. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul takes up a question the church had asked him in their correspondence with him regarding whether or not Christians could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And because of the way the market worked, the question really boiled down to whether Christians could eat meat or not, because pretty much all of the meat available in the market had been offered to one idol or another. We said that this was a cultural issue, but for some in the Corinthian church, it was also a spiritual one. Their issue was that idols have power and that in eating meat offered to an idol, you are endorsing idolatry and turning away from God. The other camp said that idols aren't real. The gods they represent aren't real. So meat offered to an idol is fine. It is no different from meat that's not offered to an idol. Paul begins his discussion by affirming that an idol has no real existence because there is only one God, the living God, whom we serve. So eating meat, not eating meat, neither is a spiritual problem. God has given us freedom. So this then becomes a cultural issue. How will you choose to interact with this thing that exists? I want to pause our discussion of idol meat. Isn't that a great sentence for a sermon? (laughs) And go back to Crouch. Crouch identifies a number of postures that Christians have taken when interacting with culture in America in the last two generations. These postures will be helpful to us in our conversation about the idol meat, and even more so as we look at how Christians ought to interact with with culture today. So the first posture is condemning culture. This came about as a result of secularization in uh, Europe in post-World War II, As secular culture gained more and more traction, a part of the church became increasingly anxious about aspects of culture. And so the posture part of the church developed was to condemn culture and escape culture. So for instance, dancing was not allowed. Rock music was the devil. This still happens in parts of the church where to remain spiritually pure... Christians avoid different aspects of culture and different things in culture altogether. I thought calling rock music the devil would get more of a laugh. (laughs) The next posture that some Christians took was to critique culture. Everything about culture was analyzed and discussed. These Christians sought to engage culture as participant observers. They wouldn't totally reject culture the way the condemners did, but they also would maintain an appropriate distance. This continues today when we see magazines like Christianity Today or the Christian Century reviewing, analyzing, and critiquing movies and music. If we had to have a mental picture of what this looks like, condemners sought to keep a firewall between themselves and culture, but critiquers sought a porous membrane. Where there is some crossover, yes, but there's also a distinction between Christianity and culture. The next posture was to copy culture entirely. This posture gave rise to the contemporary Christian music movement. Rather than avoid rock music altogether or critique it like it was something to be discussed and dissected in a lab rather than something to be enjoyed, some Christians decided to make something called Christian rock music. Copying culture is precisely what it sounds like, taking the form and injecting it with Jesus. So now we have Christian movies, Christian fiction, Christian stand-up comedy all taking the form of their cultural forebear and the language and norms of Christianity. The downside to this is that none of these are cultural innovations. This is really not a form of cultural creation. These things can become facsimiles, not able to surpass their secular counterparts in ingenuity or integrity to the particular medium. For instance, Nirvana created a new type of music that didn't exist before Nirvana. When was the last time a Christian band or artist had such a musical impact? The last posture, and it's one that we have seen in the last two generations, is consuming culture. This comes as a response to the movement of cultural copying, as some Christians saw that the the Christian versions of culture couldn't match their secular counterparts. Additionally, there were some bands and filmmakers and artists who found such great success in the Christian cultural sphere that they crossed over into the mainstream. Think Creed. With arms wide open. Sorry. Sorry. That combined to lead some to say, well, why don't we just consume culture like everyone else? If creed can cross over into the mainstream, why can't we all? So now Christians are far more likely to consume mainstream culture than a generation ago. However, Crouch notes that in the attempt to be like regular Americans, Christians may consume culture in far greater rates than regular Americans. He says it better, so I'll just let him talk. Quote, they are content to be just like their fellow Americans, or perhaps driven by a lingering sense of shame at their uncool forebears, just slightly more like their fellow Americans than everyone else. End quote. But back to idle meat, because that's a sentence you've always wanted me to inject into a sermon. Two of these postures were employed by the Christians in the church at Corinth. Some Christians condemned eating food offered to idols. They just couldn't do it. Not unlike rock music, it was the devil. They couldn't... I really thought this would be funny, I don't... (laughs) They couldn't square eating meat offered to idols with their basic beliefs as Christians. And they thought anyone that did so was doing something wrong. The other posture was consumption. The other group in the church said, Idols aren't a thing. This meat is like any other meat. And my freedom in Christ means that I can eat this meat. But in their rush to show off their freedom, they ate the idol meat brazenly. It wasn't so much they could consume. It was almost as if they had to. And if they didn't consume, it was a problem. Paul says that neither of these postures is appropriate. Paul tells the people who assume the posture of condemnation that they are giving too much power to idols. Idols aren't real. Only God is real. And their attitude towards the meat offered to idols reveals a spiritual problem within themselves. They need to understand spiritually that they could eat the meat. But back to the people who assume the posture of consumption. Paul says that their bent towards consumption is itself a form of slavery. The consumption camp argued that to show their freedom, they must eat the meat. Paul tells them that this understanding is not real freedom. True freedom is both freedom to do something and a freedom from doing that same thing. The answer comes from being freed from either of these two postures. Paul concludes his discussion of eating food offered to idols by saying, "By saying this, uh, oh, by saying this," and after looking at this, we're going to spin it forward uh, for how Christians should interact with culture today. And the this that I was referring to uh, is the scripture that we're going to look at. I am with myself now. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter ten. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul says, what's required isn't a posture. Instead, in some instances, we should do one thing, in other instances, another. That's not a posture, it's employing gestures. And if I can eat in some circumstances and not eat in others, that's freedom. But notice how Paul reframes the conversation, not around, say, my choice of whether or not to eat meat offered to idols, as if I'm the only important person in the world, but to how my actions, how my interaction with culture is affecting other people's faith. Paul says, if it will put you in community with non-believers, feel free to eat. Don't make them feel bad. Paul says, if you're eating with someone to whom you're consuming idol meat would offend their conscience or hurt their faith, don't eat. Don't cause people to stumble. Rather, do things to the glory of God so that people may be saved. So what we see here is that none of these postures we identified before are sufficient. We can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to culture, at least not one that we have employed before. There will be times when we consume culture. For instance, pumpkin spice lattes are a thing in culture and they are meant to be consumed and enjoyed a lot. They are delicious. And I loved them before everybody else did. (laughs) There will be times when we need to critique culture. There are a lot of places where we can find God in culture, where we can find grace in culture, where we can find stories of redemption and healing in culture. Think about the show, This Is Us, if you watch it. Part of what we find beautiful about that show is, finding, is seeing people find healing and redemption before our very eyes. We see them grow in community, which is also what we do here at church. Critiquing parts of culture can help us share faith and grace with people as we use a common cultural language. There are times when we need to condemn things in culture. Parts of culture that objectify humans. Parts of culture that damage humans. There are things in culture that we need to to denounce. And at times, there are parts of culture we ought to copy. Especially if we copy well. Don't copy poorly, please. When we employ all of these gestures effectively, we exhibit true freedom. But what posture or postures can we assume that allow us to make these gestures effectively? Is there a posture that Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians that we can assume as we seek to engage culture in our time? I would say yes there is. Aren't you glad? Yes. <laughs> Crouch says that what, we, what is needed today are postures of cultivation and creation. We'll start with cultivation. If you are gardening, you are trying to cultivate certain types of plants. You want bushes to grow, but only so much. You want flowers to grow in certain places, But if a flower is growing behind a bush, what good is it? I mean, it's probably still beautiful, but I'm not going to see it. You have an idea in mind. You have an objective, which is what Paul is talking about in this letter. We want people to come to faith. We want people to come to know Jesus. We want people to come to love God and to see God's love for them. So we want to cultivate things in culture that help people see God at work in the world. This means at times we'll condemn parts of culture, like a gardener taking out weeds out of a flower bed. If there is something that would inhibit another's faith, it need not be a part of our lives. For instance, as United Methodists, we use grape juice for communion. United Methodists have used grape juice for communion for a long time, and it's not because we think that wine is evil. Instead, we know that our use of wine might inhibit some people from coming to the table and could harm people if they or someone they love struggles with alcohol addiction. So we, we use grape juice so that all people can come. There are some parts of culture we'll want to grow. Those that help people see God at work in the world, who help people come to faith. I once heard, and it's probably not true, but I like to think it is, that Mozart's father had him tour all over Europe because, it, because people at the time had stopped believing in miracles and he wanted to show them God's latest. There are miracles in our world. There are miracles in our culture and we can help people see God behind them. The other posture we need to take is creation because while we can do some work to cultivate culture, our work of cultivation won't itself change culture. Crouch says, the only way to change culture is to create more of it. If you want to extend a flower bed, if you want to re-landscape your yard, you can't cultivate your way there. At some point, you have to engage in creation. If we really want to impact culture at a root level, we have to create culture. We, we have to offer people a new choice and a better choice. If we want people to go see Christian movies... Christians need to make better movies. If we want people to listen to Christian music, Christians need to make better music. If we want people to not choose soccer on Sunday and instead come to worship, our worship experience has to be more captivating than soccer. And we need to create forms of culture that don't exist yet. You know, the gospel as a literary form didn't exist until some people needed a way to tell about what they had seen in Jesus Christ. Hagiography, which emerges in the early church as a way of telling the stories of the lives of saints and martyrs, didn't exist until Christians needed a way of talking about these special lives that God makes possible that we call saints. Hymns weren't a thing until they were. The organ wasn't a thing until it was. We need to create new forms of culture that connect people's lives to Jesus. We need to create something that's better. That is the only way that we can impact and change culture. It's by getting our hands dirty to create things that are better choices than the ones that people are already making. So, how do Christians consume, engage, and interact with culture? As cultivators and creators. We cultivate and curate, to the best of our ability, things in culture that build up. We remember that while all things are permissible, not everything is good for us. We remember that while all things are allowed, not everything builds up. We cultivate things in our lives that help build up, whether that's building us up or whether that's using our freedom to help build someone else up. We let go of things that hurt us, that hurt our faith, and that hurt the faith of others. And we try to be creators. We try to create new things in culture that can help change the culture around us to be about building up, to be about grace, to be about redemption. We need to do hard work to create new forms of culture that help people encounter the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. How do Christians consume culture? Not for our own glory, but for the glory of many so that they may be saved. Let us pray. Almighty and all-living God, you created us, you formed us, and you placed us in this world for a time such as this. Help us to navigate that world with wisdom and guidance. Help us to navigate the different spheres of culture. Help us to condemn and reject what does not build up, Help us to allow others to see you moving through culture. Help us to cultivate a culture that is loving and gracious and redemptive. And in our own way, with our own unique gifts and skills, help us to be creative. Help us to create new things. Things that we can't even imagine yet that can be beacons of your love and grace to a world badly in need of redemption God I guess what we're talking about I guess what we're saying is help us to be faithful disciples help us to know what it means to follow Jesus in this particular time in this particular place It's hard. It's been hard for Christians since the formation of the church. But God, your wisdom and power and Holy Spirit have been with us. May they remain. So that more and more people can discover how much you love them. More and more people can discover what joy really is. And so that this world can be more and more the kingdom of God you want for it. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.